how would you live differently if you knew you were going to live tonight? What about if you knew that you were going to get one more week? So you're going to get another seven days, perhaps. How would you live differently if you had a week? What about if you had a month and you got another 30 days? Or worst case scenario, it's February and you get 28, right? How would you live if you had a month left to live? What about a year, 365 days? How would you live if you knew you had one more year from today to live? What about a decade? If you had a decade, how would you live if you knew that you would die 10 years from today? How would you live if you knew you were going to die someday? And that's the reality, friends, is we are all going to die someday. Whether it's a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years or however long, we will all die one day. And yet, how many of us actually live with that in mind? Now, I don't say that to be morbid because the good news for all of those who surrender their lives to Jesus is that death is not the end. As Paul David Tripp puts it, the Bible clearly teaches that this life is not all there is. It is the fact that every human is heading for forever of some kind. It is a fact that every human is heading for forever of some kind. Yes, we are either heading for eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus, or we're heading to what Jesus calls hell, a life of eternal torment and suffering apart from all love and hope. Now, if you're wondering, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, shameless plug, come to Theology on Tap this Wednesday at 7.30 at New Realm, and Kendall Harmon will be explaining and answering questions along with a couple of other panelists as well. So, 7.30 p.m. Well, knowing these things should therefore have a profound impact on how we live our lives, even in the area of our finances. Paul David Tripp continues, what does this have to do with your money? The answer is everything. You simply cannot understand and live out God's plan for you and your money if you are not living with eternity in view. I am persuaded that much of the money insanity that lives in us and around us is the direct and practical result of culturally endemic eternity amnesia. Culturally endemic eternity amnesia. Reminds me of the story of an incredibly wealthy businesswoman who had a very impressive art collection. She collected a lot of antiques from all over the world. But one day, she died. And a lot of people came to the funeral. She was so well-known. And on the way out, a journalist who had been to the funeral, he, he leaned over to the priest and whispered to him, how much did she leave? And the priest leaned back and whispered, everything. <laughs> See, our time in this world is coming to an end, and we cannot take any of our wealth or our possessions with us when we, when we die. So how should we live in light of these facts? This is what we're going to be looking at today. And for those of you who've been around, uh, you will know that we're in a series. If you've not been around, we're in a series called A Transformed Life, looking at how we can be transformed into our true selves in Christ, in particular in the area of our finances. And God clearly cares a lot about this. He has over 2,300 verses in Scripture about finances and possessions alone, more than double faith and prayer combined. And what we're seeing is that our bank account often reveals more about our faith than our church attendance. Our bank account often reveals more about our faith than our church attendance. And that God wants us to surrender our lives to him even in the area of our finances. No, especially in the area of our finances. 
Today we're going to dig into our gospel reading from Luke chapter 12. And what we're going to see in this challenging teaching from Jesus is that to be transformed, we need to be set free from covetousness and greed. And the antidote to covetousness and greed, something that our Western culture and our local culture is rife with, is generously giving back to the Lord what we've been given and giving away, giving away more than we can seemingly afford. So having said all that, let's turn to our gospel reading. And I'm actually going to go a few verses prior to where we begin today. It's really helpful. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, you're welcome to open that up as well, just so you can see that. We're in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to begin actually at verse 12 there, I think. And what we've got here is a parable. It's not to be confused with the people called the Parabolani who Clive spoke of last week. I was a little thrown by his weird accent and couldn't quite catch what he was saying. Sorry, that, clearly that didn't go well, Clive. <laughs> no, in the Bible, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so it's not a true story in the sense of it being an event in history, but rather it's a story that illustrates an important point. Think of Aesop's fables. You heard of Aesop's fables? Yeah, think of like the, the hare and the tortoise, okay? There's a point behind that story, right? Similarly with parables. Well, Jesus uses them often. There are over 30 in the Gospels. And I think that's because he knows that stories speak to our hearts. Think for a moment of your favorite childhood book, perhaps, or your favorite childhood movie. If I was to sit you down and say, hey, tell me what happens in that book or in that movie, you would probably just go, oh, it's this, 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 and this. Tell me the whole story. Now, if I said, think of your favorite ever class from high school. Tell me what the teacher said. You would probably struggle to recount that lesson, right? In a way that you could have so easily done with the story. Well, Jesus likes to speak in stories because he helps us to remember them. And turning to this particular parable, we see that the setting is that Jesus is teaching a crowd of possibly thousands. And someone in the crowd asks him to arbitrate for him in a dispute that he's having with his brother. That person says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I think it would be safe to assume that this is the younger of the two brothers, okay, the younger one, and that the father of these two brothers has died without leaving any written or oral will, okay? So now, according to the laws of that time, the estate can't be divided until the older brother agrees. Well, clearly, the older brother doesn't want to agree. He doesn't want to share the inheritance that he's been given. And so the younger brother feels aggrieved. I expect if we were to talk about among ourselves, we'd find that maybe some of us have been in that situation in our own families over the years. It can be very painful, that kind of experience. Well, it actually isn't that unusual to ask a rabbi. You might think, well, it's a little strange to ask a rabbi, but rabbis were considered experts in the law, and Jesus was a rabbi. And so uh, they asked Jesus, or he asked Jesus, and Jesus refuses. Now, why is that? Well, you see, Jesus has got a different agenda. He can see what's really going on in this man's heart. And he wants to fix the broken relationship that's there. But even more so, he wants to get rid of the grip that wealth has over each of them. So Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he gets the root of the brother's problem, the thing that's driving a wedge between them. It's covetousness and greed. And we come to our reading for today, verse 15. Then Jesus said to them, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, because Luke writes that Jesus says this to them, it makes me believe that the older brother is actually standing there right next to his younger brother in the crowd. 
And well, whoever he's speaking to, he wants to teach us an important lesson, that real security, peace, and joy are only found in him. Not in our possessions or in the possessions of others that we wish we had. No, they're found only in Jesus alone. Well, I'm guessing that's a lesson that we've all learned already, right? You've got that one down. Yeah? Frank's laughing. <laughs> we can stop, right, and move on to the creed. I don't think so. How many of us, if we're honest, spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about our financial security? And we forget where true security comes from. Perhaps you constantly check the stock market, worried about your stocks. Maybe you're always checking your bank account. Maybe you're worried about that quarterly pension update that's about to come. Or that college fund that you've established for your kids. Or you're constantly wondering why so-and-so on the next desk down is earning more than you. Why do they get more than me? No, this is something we struggle with too, for sure. And so Jesus shares a story to help this man and to help everyone, including us, who will listen to it throughout history. Verses 16 through 19. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. So a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge, the rich man in our story does well for himself and wants to hoard all that he has for himself too, for his later years. Everything he's earned is his. It's down to no one else's efforts, such as his workers or the Lord himself. No, he's earned this money and he plans to spend it for himself. Now you might be thinking, well, that's fair enough. He is the boss. He took the risk. He invested his money. Why shouldn't he keep all of that money? Well, the problem is that he's missing the point. It's not that money or material things are wrong in themselves or even that it's wrong to enjoy those things. It's that they must not become the goal of our life. They're given to us to glorify God and not to glorify ourselves. Being wealthy, though, has become the number one goal in this man's life. It's not the means to glorify God for him with his generosity and his good stewardship or good management of what God's given him. He glorifies himself. Notice the language in the passage. Did you catch it? He says, he speaks of my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul, my, 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 my. However, he hasn't reckoned with God the one who really gave him all of these things, the one who actually created the ground from which he grew the crops. And in verses 20 and 21, we read this. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, God knows something that this man doesn't. He knows that his life will end that night. And that the vast amount of earthly wealth that he's accumulated, well, it's useless to him. Useless. And notice God doesn't mince his words. I'm not sure if he really says this in anger, but more in pity or sadness. He says, fool, fool. He's sought security in his possessions and he's neglected to store up for himself treasure in heaven. When he could have been using his wealth for good and making preparations for his eternal life, he chose to hoard. And, you know, it's a trap that many people fall into. The British commentator David Wenham writes this, The parable of the rich fool illustrates the deceitfulness of riches. 
Their deceitfulness lies in their tendency to give people an illusory sense of security, to fill people's thoughts and horizons, and to stifle any interest in the kingdom of God. There's too many of us become obsessed with something that's really and ultimately an illusion. And what is that? It's the idea of having security apart from God, having security apart from God. You see, while it's not wrong to manage your money and your possessions well, becoming consumed to the point of losing interest in the things of God is actually a very dangerous place to be. And I think it's a pretty worrying story for most of us in the Western world. It certainly makes me personally stop and think. If ever a culture was obsessed with possessions and the accumulation of wealth, if ever a society was full of covetousness and greed, it is ours. You just need to drive down any of the roads in Charleston and see the pro proliferation of storage units, right? We have hoarded to the point where now we create these mini storage units to store our stuff. Other countries don't do this. They don't. Go look it up. We are the ones holding on, having too much. In his book, which I rec highly recommend every Christian read, Rich Christians in Age of Hunger, Moving from Affluence to Generosity, Ron Sider, who sadly passed away recently, writes this, We have been brainwashed to believe that bigger houses, more prosperous businesses, and more sophisticated gadgets are the way to joy and fulfillment. As a result, we are caught in a, an absurd, materialistic spiral. The more we make, the more we think we need in order to live decently and respectably. Somehow we have to break this cycle because it makes us sin and it also destroys us. So how can we be set free from this cycle? The thing that's killing our souls, destroying us. The materialism of our culture, our covetousness, our greed. How can our lives be transformed? Well, our only hope is still Jesus. It's still Jesus. Only in him can we find true peace and be freed from our sin of greed. Tim, uh, Tim Keller writes this, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Therefore, think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. See, in the cross of Christ, we see radical generosity at work. We see it. The Father gives his only son to die for those who've turned their back on him. And because of his generous heart, we're able to be free from sin and from death and from greed and from covetousness. And once we've been set free, we're then called to respond with gratitude and generosity and to live out this new gospel-shaped identity that's been given to us. This is where true joy and true peace are found, in giving away what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose, giving it away sacrificially, giving it away abundantly, giving it away over and over and over again. Funny story, so we did the echo bags this week, and um, I see some of you brought some more, and Adam, thank you. And uh, I went to the store to, get my echo, to fill my echo bag, and I'm walking around the aisles, I'm like, well, that's kind of expensive. Hmm, that's kind of expensive. I guess I'll get the off-brand for that, right? Maybe I'll get the, uh, the cheaper one of those, right? Even filling a grocery bag 
I can be tempted towards stinginess. And yet the king of all earth, or king of all heaven, has descended to the cross, died a cruel and unusual punishment for me, for my sin that I continue to do every day. And yet still I can quibble over a few pennies on a can of groceries. That's how deep our sin is, friends. It's how deep our greed is and our covetousness. We struggle with this. Let's be honest. So what would you say? Would you say that you have a generous heart? Is that who you are? Has your life been transformed in the area of your finances yet? Are you managing well what God's given to you? Are you living in the light of eternity or just for today? And if someone was to look at your bank accounts, or maybe we were to project them on the screen right now, would they say, now there is someone who truly trusts the Lord. There is someone who truly trusts the Lord. You see, when we live in the light of eternity, knowing that we may die tomorrow or tonight, that will, and that we'll certainly die one day and go to be with Jesus, then we start to think beyond ourselves. We realize that we, what we have doesn't belong to us anyway, and that we're stewards of what actually is God's, not ours, and that our money and our wealth is for a much bigger purpose than our personal provision, or just so that we can simply eat, drink, and be merry. Yes, this life's a preparation for our final destination. Eternity and the truth of the eternity to come protects us from the lie that was first told in the Garden of Eden that life can be found outside of a relationship with the Lord. It cannot. Yes, eternity reminds us every day that we cannot buy with our money what only grace can provide. It reminds us that what's truly valuable, which is generally not what the world around us values, whether it's the newest car, the bigger, better home, the most up-to-date fixtures and fittings in our home, the perfectly landscaped backyard, the club membership, the souped-up golf cart, the food and wine at the finest restaurants, the annual Disney or European vacation, the best, most fashionable clothes, the best private schools or colleges that money can buy, and so on and so on and so on. No, God's not going to be interested in any of those things when we meet him on judgment day. He's not going to say, well, did you provide the best education at the best private school for your kids? He's not going to ask that. He'll be concerned about how we steward his money for the sake of his church and for the poor and for the needy, the sick, the outcast, the orphan, the widow, the homeless, the missionary, and so on. This is the fruit that reveals true repentance and a real relationship with God. And so Jesus will say, did you love me when you looked upon them? When you saw a need, did you meet it? More than this, did you actually look for the needs that you could meet? Did you give generously? Did you give regularly? Did you give cheerfully of my money? My money. You know, as Scripture reveals, it's going to be a scary moment for some people, but it's going to be a rewarding moment for others. So will you begin to live in the light of eternity today, knowing that today could be your last day? And will you begin by trusting God with your finances? Will you give a tithe to him of 10% or more, as he speaks of in the Old Testament, and begin to be free of the greed and covetousness that we all find ourselves swimming in all the time? And will you repent of not doing this sooner and wasting precious time 
asking him to forgive you for being fearful or controlling or greedy. You know, the good news is he's full of grace and mercy and he is quick to forgive. And he promises to forgive all those who come to him with penitent hearts. And he will set you free from greed and from covetousness to walk lightly in this world as you prepare for the next. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you with an attitude of repentance, recognizing that this is something we in our culture really struggles with, with greed and covetousness. It feels like, in fact, our culture is almost based upon those things. It revolves around those things for the sake of our economy and so on. But Lord, I pray that we might be countercultural, forgive us our sins, and help us to live for you, truly bearing the fruit of repentance by becoming people who are sacrificially giving, trusting in you, and seeing you build our faith as we see you provide all that we need and all that your kingdom needs in this earth right here, right now, and as we prepare ourselves for the new heaven and the new earth to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.